This episode is brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. These guys make the coolest adjustable climbing wall you can imagine that'll fit right in your garage. I bet many of you listening to this have tried the moon board, maybe even the tension board or the kilter board. Well, I tell you what, I've tried all of the boards on the market and the grasshopper board is my favorite and it's the one I cannot wait to have in my own garage someday. Let me tell you what Grasshopper does better than anybody else. The folks at Grasshopper did a really good job with the hold shapes and spacing. They mix in good and comfortable jug holds and in-cut edges that are small enough that they don't get in the way, and they space them out so it's easy to warm up by just hopping on the board. And it's also really awesome for circuit training because no matter where you are on the board, there's always a good hold within reach. So you can down climb or shake out, link sections together, and those good holds become super handy when you kick the board back to 60 degrees. Number two, the LED lights are positioned perfectly. Again, no matter where you are on the board, you can always see the next handhold or the next foothold. The lights are never blocked by the climbing hold, which I love. Number three, the board is freaking hard. The holds look friendly, and I guess they are in the sense that they are very comfortable to climb on, but do not let that deceive you. This board is nails hard and super good for limit bouldering or whatever other kind of training you wanna do. But don't take my word for it. The folks at Grasshopper believe in their product and they just want you to try it out for yourself. Be sure to check them out on Instagram at Grasshopper Climbing if you want to see the board in action. And you can visit their website at grasshopperclimbing.com to learn more and contact their sales team to find out where you can go try out the board and to find out which board system is right for you. And if you are ready to pull the trigger on your very own Grasshopper board, the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8x10. That's their smallest board. And you can save even more money if you upgrade to one of their larger boards. Just tell them that you learned about the Grasshopper board from the Nugget, and they will hook it up and save you hundreds of dollars. That's like a new rope, and two pairs of climbing shoes you can save just for listening to this podcast. Once again, you can check them out on Instagram at Grasshopper Climbing or at their website, grasshopperclimbing.com, and be sure to tell them I sent you. This episode is also brought to you by Climbwell. Climbwell has another retreat coming up in June of 2022, this time in beautiful Rifle, Colorado. Do you ever feel like the biggest thing holding your climbing and training back are actually not the physical things? Maybe it's work-life balance or total lack of balance. You just don't have enough time to get outside or stick with a training plan. Maybe it's your mental game, fear, whether that's fear of falling or fear of failure or negative self-talk are holding you back. Or maybe you just realize that climbing is a mental sport. You have a hunch that a little more focus and mindfulness will help you break through to the next level. Well, if any of this sounds familiar, you have to check out Climbwell. You can find them on Instagram at climbwell.co to see what they're all about. They're putting on a four-day retreat in Rifle, Colorado for climbers who are interested in mindfulness and personal growth. The retreat is run by three experienced climbers, Remy Franklin, Gabby Coletta, and... Blake Kaysen, who has been on the podcast more than once. Remy, Gabby, and Blake are 
all certified climbing guides with a lot of experience on the rock. So they know a few things about climbing as well as life, wellness, and coaching. They created ClimbWell to help climbers grow as people and athletes so we can all find a better climb life balance and evaluate our performance on and off the rock. If this sounds like the right fit for you, the folks at ClimbWell are offering listeners to this podcast 10% off the four-day retreat in Rifle. The dates for that, by the way, are June 9th through the 12th. Head over to climbwell.co and use discount code NUGGET10 at checkout. That's NUGGET10 at checkout to save 10% off the retreat. Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is one of my all-time climbing heroes, Jerry Moffat. If you haven't heard of Jerry, Jerry was widely regarded as the best British climber in the 80s and 90s, and also arguably the best rock climber in the world during the mid to late 1980s. This guy's a total legend and just a rock star, and he was really fun to talk to. So we talked about the early days for him and being in high school and reading the magazines and wanting to be a crag rat and what some of his early years of climbing looked like before there was sponsorship. The level of dirt bagging that these guys were doing just to be able to scrape by and climb as much as possible absolutely blows my mind and was so fun to hear about. So we talked about that. We talked about his first trip to America and doing some of the hardest climbs in the States in the early 80s. We talked about some of his proudest achievements in climbing and some of the routes that really stand out in his mind. And we talked quite a bit about Jerry's recent book called Mastermind. Jerry literally wrote the book on mental training for climbing. He interviewed a lot of top climbers in the world as research for the book and included their stories and their thoughts and ideas in the book. And it really just is an incredible resource for mental training for climbing. And it's something that Jerry has become a master of himself, but he's also drawing from many of the other top athletes in our sport. So we talked about that. We talked about the book that had the greatest influence on Jerry himself when he was struggling with climbing competitions and what helped him turn around his mindset to win his first climbing competition. And we talked about what some of the top climbers in the world have in common when it comes to their mental game. Before we jump in, I want to give a shout out to a new patron who is now supporting the show, Skylar Maxwell. Thank you so much for signing up and for supporting the show. Skylar has signed up for the $30 per month tier, which means that Skylar is going to give $10 to The Nugget, $10 to Sacred Rock, which is an awesome nonprofit organization started by Ron Kauk and Katie Lambert. And $10 to Climbing for Change, which is Kai Leitner's nonprofit as well. So thank you so much, Skylar. Super generous of you and awesome to be supporting three organizations in one. Uh, for you guys listening, if you want to learn more about that, you can learn more at patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. And I haven't updated you guys in a while, but this is pretty cool. We're now donating us as a group, all of you guys, we're donating over a hundred dollars a month to sacred rock through patreon and two hundred dollars a month to climbing for change those are the latest numbers and that's pretty cool 
I wasn't sure what to expect with this whole experiment, but it's awesome. It's going really well. And I'm really grateful for you guys for stepping up to help out these other organizations. So again, you can learn about that and other ways to support the show at thenuggetclimbing.com or at patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing. As always, there's links right there in your podcast app. Thank you guys for tuning in today. As always, appreciate you being here and I hope you enjoy this very fun and wide-ranging conversation with one of my all-time climbing heroes, Jerry Moffat. Well, Jerry, it is so good to be here with you. I've been really excited about this because you are and have been one of my all-time climbing heroes. And I think you already were before I read the book Revelations, but then reading your book, Jerry Moffat Revelations, really took my admiration of you to the next level. And it was just so fascinating, like such an interesting glimpse into what climbing was at that time. And I think the thing, aside from hearing about your climbing and all of your you know, escapades, for lack of a better way of saying it, just the glimpse into you guys climbing in the UK at that time just absolutely blew me away. You know, like I, I, I was a college climber and, you know, living really cheaply, a poor college student. And I kind of thought I had experienced what it was like to be a dirtbag. You know, I lived in a Subaru for six right. months and traveled around. Yeah. And then I read about you guys and it just, it just completely changed my perspective on um, on what it meant to be a dirtbag. And I wondered if we could start there. You know, yeah. in high school, like everyone, you, you talk about this at the start of your book, like everyone is kind of starting to see where their life might be headed and they start to latch onto a track, like I'm going to become a doctor or go into this trade or that trade or whatever. And Jerry Moffat, age 16, just wants to become a crag rat. And I wondered if you could yeah. describe what a crag rat is. Like in your mind as a 16 year old, like what, what was that? What was it that so captivated you about that potential life path? Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for your kind words first. Um, so back when I started climbing when I was 16, the only climbing magazine around was Crags magazine. And I think there'd been maybe one year that it had been out and they, they used to tell the top, the top climbers crag rats. So that's where I got the phrase from. So my heroes like Pete Livesey and Ron Fawcett, they were called Crag Rats and they went around before any sponsorship or anything like that. And they had the phrase Crag Rats. And I remember uh, the little kids at school, I was a prefect and I was, you know, looking after these kids and they did their homework and they were saying like, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to be a Crag Rat. <laughs> I want to leave school and I just want to, I just want to go climbing. So I, I left school at 17 uh, with no real qualifications. Um, I didn't get enough qualifications to to do university or college or anything like that. And I remember finishing my first exam early, putting my hand up and saying, can I leave, please? And he goes, yes. I went straight off, got my rucksack, walked down a mile to the bottom of the road and stuck my thumb out and hitched to <laughs> a place called Traumatic, which was two hours away. And then I spent the next three months with one of my best mates, Andy Pollitt, 
and uh, I got there. He was waiting for me. He was super psyched, and we straight away went went off to try one of the hardest routes. We completely failed on it, but just to hang on the holds that our heroes had touched and be thinking, I'm on finger licker, I'm trying finger licker, and we were there all day. <laughs> um, and then I spent the next three months uh, living. There was a barn there, so we used to live in the barn, and I think it was, I don't know, maybe it was 20 pence a day, like a quarter or something like that. Uh, we stayed there, and then the cliff was just outside. And at the time, that was one of the... The, the sort of top places to climb in Britain. Mm. And I spent three months living there. Um, I never brushed my teeth once. I never changed my clothes. <laughs> you imagine a 17-year-old kid. You think you're an adult, but you're just like, you don't know nothing. Oh my I found God. a great way to live. And I found that uh, I could, the cheapest way to live, I bought a big bag of white rice. I used to boil that up and I used to eat white rice. And I got a uh, a packet of curry mix, which you just add boiling water to, mix that around, pour that on the right on the white rice, and that was. I was just like, wow, why doesn't everybody do this? You can live for free. <laughs> uh, Did so you... that's, that that was my that was my summer. Oh my gosh! Did you have money coming in from the dole, or were you just? Did you have a little no, bit of savings? No, not at that time. No, okay. I didn't have any money. I didn't sign on the dole then, so I lived off. Uh, it was roughly, I think it was about a pound a day. Oh that was gosh. my budget. So we, you know, we would go in the cafe and sit there, but we wouldn't have anything. So yeah, you... uh, we couldn't afford cups of tea, and then we'd go to the pub and sit in the pub, but we wouldn't drink anything. <laughs> we just like kind of sit there, and um, we, we just we just didn't spend money. But I didn't need any money. I didn't need anything. I didn't didn't want for anything. It was just a fantastic time, just climbing every day, and then the evening I'd go bouldering. Um, so this was ninety. I think this was seventy. Oh, maybe it was ni- maybe it was nineteen eighty, but I think in in seventy eight the book Master of Rock came out with John Gill, mm. so I can remember I really got into that. So I'd go climbing all day, and then I'd get the book and I'd read Master of Rock, and I, I read it many many times, so I knew all the words in it, and I'd read this book. And at the end of the day of a full day's climbing, I used to walk an hour to a bouldering crag, and I used to go bouldering there by myself doing all these problems, you know, thinking, oh, I'm just like John Gill. <laughs> but I was just a beginner. I wasn't a great climber when I got there, but very quickly in that three months, I went from doing quite hard routes to doing sort of the, the hardest routes, you know, very quickly. I think because wow. I was bouldering. I think I was, I was doing a lot of bouldering and stuff. So you're climbing every day, all day at the crag, and then going bouldering in the evenings on top of that? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you can't get enough, can you? Class, 17, classic seventeen-year-old, you know? yeah, living off oh, yeah. of rice and curry. Yeah. Um, how did you first discover climbing? It sounds like that three-month trip was kind of your first exposure to outdoor climbing, climbing on rock. What were you doing before that? Uh, well, I'd climbed out. I'd climbed outside before, but I was fortunate enough to go to a school in North Wales. It was a boarding school, so I, I slept. I lived in the school. I, don't, I guess you have a few of those in the states, but it was a boarding school. So I went there and then I was there for months. And then my best mate at school, he was a climber. So I started climbing just because he went climbing. And then I started to really enjoy it. Uh, and then I had a summer holiday. My parents lived in Leicester. That's flat as a pancake with no climbing. And I really wanted to climb. So I, uh, on the back of my parents' wall, it was a red big wall with like little bits of cement in it. And you could just get your fingers into the edges of the cement. 
but I couldn't climb on it because it was too difficult. So I made some. I've just got cut some four wooden blocks out, got these six inch nails and nailed them onto the wall. <laughs> and then I spent my my uh, my summer holidays just traversing on the, across those things. And then I managed to do some of them without the wooden blocks. And by the end of the summer holidays, I could traverse the wall just on the little brick edges. Mm, wow. So I went from climbing. Um, back then, climbing five nine was pretty hard. So I went from climbing five nine, then I went back to school, and my first day climbing, I was climbing sort of sort of five ten. So that was uh, an English call that extreme. Mm. So the first day there, I did an extreme thing, and my my climbing went through the roof. And then where our school was, it was limestone, big limestone blocks, and you could get your fingers in these limestone blocks. So in the in the school breaks, every school break between lessons, when I got really keen, I thought, well, I'm when I leave school, I'm gonna be a professional. I'm not a professional climber, I'm gonna be a climber. So I thought, well, I wanna I've got to approach this like it's a job. So every break, I used to like jump over the wall and go traversing on these little walls and I made up all these little boulder problems. Um we didn't have any chalk at the time. We didn't know what chalk was, so we, we ended up getting some French chalk which is like talcum powder. And we thought, wow, what's this stuff? Man? It, was, <laughs> it was horrendous. You couldn't climb with it. We're thinking, man, this ch- everybody's using this chalk. It seems to be harder to climb with this stuff. <laughs> so we climbed with that for a bit. And we thought we were great because our hands were white and we were, we were doing all this stuff. Uh, and then we, found, then we got some proper chalk. And at that time, you had to go to the chemist and you had to buy light magnesium carbonate which I think is for stomach upsets. That's what everybody got to begin with. There was no climbing shops and buying chalks. And we went to to Boots and we got a little box of light magnesium carbonate. And then that's how we started using chalk. But then that's the only chalk you could get. What were you wearing on your feet at the time? Uh, I had a pair of trainers. So I used to climb in trainers. Just like tennis shoes? We would call them tennis shoes? Yeah, tennis shoes. Yeah, a pair of tennis shoes. And then for my 16th birthday, I got a pair of EBs. Uh, and that, that sort of, that was, you know, brilliant having my first climbing shoes. And then I felt like I was a proper climber. But when I first started our climbing instructor, he said to learn how to climb properly, you had to climb in big, heavy walking boots. So they were like ski boots, massive, great things. So, you know how like Joe Brown and Don Willans and the old climbers, they climbed in nail boots. It was a big, heavy boot with nails stuck, stuck on the bottom. He was like, that's, you know, to get your good footwork, you've got to climb in these. I mean, mm. they're effectively like leather ski boots. They were horrific. <laughs> so we climbed in them. So then we got some tennis shoes and we're like, wow, these are way easier. Then we got some climbing boots and then we're like, oh, these are even better. But back then it was, you know, I didn't see anybody climbing with chalk for the first year I was climbing. You never saw anybody doing hard stuff. You never saw people with chalk. Um, so it was, you know, it was quite early on in climbing. And then we saw the first pro- person climb with chalk and we all just stopped and watched and went, whoa, whoa, <laughs> he had a headband on. And we're just like, whoa, look at that, man, whoa, he's got a headband and chalk. And we were just like open mouths watching this guy try this climb. We were just like, you know, we got a real buzz out of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> pretty funny. So I was going to ask that. So you had a climbing instructor. So climbing must have been yes. somewhat established, but it sounds like the paradigm was still like we're preparing for Himalayan mountaineering or something like that. Um, yeah, but- we were not so much Himalayan climbing, but we were, it was preparing for, for climbing. We were allowed to go off by ourselves. At 16, I could go off with my 16-year-old mate 
and we could go and do five eights and stuff. We mm. didn't have any real safety instruction. If we'd have fallen, <laughs> I mean, if we'd have fallen, he'd hit the ground. We only had, I remember in all the years climbing, only one guy ever fell off and the guy holding the rope didn't know what to do and the guy hit the ground and broke his ankle. <laughs> <laughs> You didn't know how to be late. I mean, you just like standing there going, oh, yeah, oh, you know. But there was no no real safety stuff. Is this a hip blade? Did you have harnesses or? Uh, yeah, we had harnesses and we had a stitch blade. Okay, okay. Yeah, so we had that, but you didn't really know how the stitch blade worked and you didn't really know how to put gear in. <laughs> and the whole thing was... Right, the, the leader wasn't you, supposed to fall you, you, you would you, When you did a climb, you weren't supposed to fall off it, you know. You're supposed to do, do the grade that you weren't supposed to fall off. As a 16-year-old kid, you know, looking at these limestone blocks on the side of your school room, like, I'm going to become a, a full-time rock climber. Were you just a total weirdo, or did you have role models that were showing you that that was possible? Like, where, where did that come from? Because it doesn't sound like that was... Uh, well, my, my hear it, but, you know, no, it wasn't weird because the, the top climbers of the day somehow, uh, I think... The, at the time, it was Ron Fawcett and Pete Livesey. So they were climbing all the time. Uh, their profession, they were school teachers. And school teachers get quite a bit of time off and they went climbing. I didn't really know how to figure out how I was going to do it. I just wanted to go climbing and I just felt like I had to climb. And uh, my brother, when he left school, he had a year off. So I figured, well, I'll leave school. I'm going to have a year off. So this was my year off. And in that year off, I was going to go climbing. And that one year off turned into 40 <laughs> <laughs> well I, done I, I never did I, I never did go to work and it turned into a year and then two years and then and then you, you just keep going oh man well you i mean you did whatever it took to continue doing it and that was really what stood out to me reading your book like man these guys I think I love climbing. I think a lot of us listening to this think we love climbing, but you guys really loved climbing. Like the things that you would do to be able to go climbing every day was just incredible. I, I wonder if you could just describe in more detail the barn at Eric's Cafe. You already mentioned sleeping there, but can you just paint a little bit more of a scene? And I would oh, love, yeah. I'd love to ask Very you about easily. some of your other uh, living accommodations, you know, uh, kind of in, in podcast air quotes here. When you said it was a barn, you walked in, it was um, big stone blocks on the inside. There was straw on the ground. Uh, you had a table on the, right in the middle where people had put their food. Um, it was probably, I guess it was about six metres by four metres. And then there was mattresses on the floor. I actually got, I was sleeping one night and a mouse or a rat ran over my face. <laughs> <laughs> so that freaked me out. So then I got two mattresses. So I was up slightly higher. Where did you get the mattresses? But I remember. I remember one one pump. The mattress was just left there. So that was all part of the accommodation. And then I can remember one day one of the guys came in and he saw a massive rat. He said he thought it was a rabbit. Oh my god! And gosh. he saw this rat on the floor. And then he he hitched home the next day <laughs> to buy a tent. And he wasn't going to stay there. And I remember this guy. He had one piece of bread. So it left before he left. So he had this one piece of bread. And as he slept, he put the piece of bread next to him. And in the morning, this mouse or rat nibbled half of the piece of bread off. And I remember rather than throw it away, he pinched all the just around the edge of where the mouse had been eating, chucked it, fried it, had it for breakfast, and then went back and got a tent. <laughs> I couldn't believe he didn't throw the piece of bread. I couldn't believe it. That's all he had, one piece of bread. <laughs> 
So that's you know that that's what it was like. But every night when the lights were turned off, you'd hear it was more noisy when the lights were turned off, and you'd hear bank plates being knocked over and all these bloody horrible things running around and stuff. But to us, it was great because you had a mattress and it was dry, and there were probably probably ten other climbers all sleeping in there and stuff. Wow. So it was a great scene. It was a great scene. It was a really good scene. It was great fun. And say the name of the crag again, Tremadog? I'm it's saying that. Tra- traumatic. 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 Traumatic, yes. So Ron Fawcett had just done a new route there called Strawberries, and that was the hardest climb in Britain. So that was a really famous route. And there was a couple of famous routes there. It's from Pete Livesey called Cream um, and... Uh, another one called Void, and there was a big head wall, and we we walked out the barn. You could see this head wall up on the top. So those those were in the magazines, and they were the hardest routes. And while we were there in those three months, we saw Pete Livesey, and we saw Ron Fawcett, and we saw all these, you know, John Red and all these top climbers. And it was just to be in the same space as those guys that you'd seen in the magazines was fantastic and, and really exciting. Mm. Well, and strawberries, yeah. from what I understand, I've never been, but it's still a fairly hard route. You know, it's 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 uh, something that it's a classic that people still aspire to go do. Yeah, I think it's is it seven C. I think it's seven C, maybe seven C, seven C plus, maybe okay. something like, so like that. Twelve D or thirteen A for us, um, for us in the states. Yeah, be too, yeah, but I think it'd be like yeah, twelve C or something like that. So you progressed a ton that summer. Oh, I just went, I just improved massively. Wow. I mean, we, we didn't do stuff ethically properly. You know, we, we'd like climb up, fall off, and then get straight back on and carry on and then claim that we did the route. So some of the routes we did from bottom to top, we did okay. We did stuff with yo-yos. So you'd climb up, fall off, lower to the ground, not pull your rope, rope and then climb back up again. So I repeated strawberries, but I kind of fell off, got back on, and then carried on and did it and said that I did it, but I didn't really do it because I kind of fell off and carried on. And you just didn't know any better at the time. I didn't know any better. We thought that's what everybody did. <laughs> yeah. You know, when people said they had a fall. We, we, there was nothing, there was no pitches. There was no internet. We just thought everybody liked fall. And then if you got back on really quickly and didn't sit on the rope, it didn't really matter. So you'd fall off, get straight back on. And that was okay. But you couldn't sit on the rope and have a rest. So I did it like that. Uh, and then it was only that winter when I went to um, to the Peak District, then my ethics changed and people were like, you know, said, oh, you're a cheat, you're frigging stuff. I'm like, well, what are you doing? <laughs> How do you do it? And then and then after that, I never did that again. Uh, and then I went back to, to Strawberries the next summer and then did it again properly. Mm. But I could, but I mean, I did it in, what, two days sitting on the rope. I mean, nowadays people spend so long on roofs and I could have easily done it if I'd spent two more days on it easily. But, you know, if you spent if you spent three days on a rope uh, on a route back then, that was a that was a massive siege. That was a huge that was siege tactics. That was long term. <laughs> Nobody spent more than three days on a route. Wow. I don't think even for the I mean, I hardly, you know, even I never spent three days in a route for for probably the first six or seven years of my climbing. Wow. Yeah, three yeah. days was was a, was a long long time on a route. I I just think it's so interesting that you guys intuitively just climbed that way and didn't know better because you know we we tend to think or i tend to think of climbing as being very intuitive because we're so entrenched in the norms and the traditions and the ethics and you know like the rules i guess but until someone explains the rules it's not really 
it's not really that obvious. Like there are actual rules to this game that we're all playing. And it's it's just, yeah, your, your story from the book really illuminates that. I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot, it's a lot better now with Redpoint. It's just easier. But we had a long time from the early 80s. I went over to France and I was um, doing stuff with yo-yos, but we'd never go to the top and practice stuff. We wouldn't sit on a bolt and then go bolt to bolt and practice all the moves. We thought that was cheating. So if you fell off, you could practice the moves on that bolt, but then you had to lower down. So we thought what the French were doing with their red pointing was cheating because they were abseiling down and mm. practicing all the moves to the top. And we were like, whoa, that's totally cheating. And then we were leaving our ropes clipped in and yo-yoing stuff. And they thought that was cheating because we weren't red pointing stuff. But in <laughs> retrospect, you just want what you better to just red point stuff, you hmm. know, because it's just the same for everybody. And you just you practice the whole thing, then you red point it. It's much better. But it took it took, you know, quite a while. I think it was around eighty around eighty six, seven, the English ethics changed from people climbing in France and then we adopted what they did. Mm. Oh, so it took a while for it to carry yeah, over. Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it took, you know, I, I got injured in 84 and I didn't climb for two years. <clears throat> and in that time, it changed. Uh, and then when I started climbing again, everybody was red pointing stuff. And you just go, well, that's the game. How you don't want to do anything different from them. So that's when that changed. At what point did you start to get recognition for how good you were? Um, I think in 80, uh, 1982, 81-2, when I repeated strawberries, not ethically, when I did it the first time. That's when I first got my uh, photo in the magazines. So that's when I first, I was 17, and I'd you know, done the hardest route, supposedly, wow. in Wales. So that's when people had first heard of me. And then I think when I, think when I was 18, uh, I was in the Peak District, and I, I really think I was climbing better than anybody in, in England when I was 18. I mean, Ron Fawcett was still supposed to be the best climber, but he might spend three days on a route and I'd do it like first go. Wow. I'd on site it and stuff. So I was climbing better than him. But with the magazines, that the magazines aren't really good. They didn't really report it that way because Ron Fawcett was mates with the editor. So they don't really just swap it <laughs> over straight away. You know, they, they, they don't, you know, they right. don't just go, well, who's this new guy? And they'd write a load of rubbish in the magazines. And you're thinking, hang on a minute. I don't want to they say I did that first go. You know, and they'd still say Ron's the best and and stuff like that. So it took took a while to come over. Were you the, 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 Go ahead. I said, well, the, the, the big difference for me really was uh 1983. I, I planned to go to America in 1983, and the hardest routes in the world then were thought to be in America, and they probably were. Uh, and there was a couple of routes in Colorado called Psycho and Genesis in Boulder in El Dorado. And Jim Collins had done them and they were thought to be just so hard and everybody had tried them and he'd spent a month doing them. So my goal was really to go to America and try and do the hardest routes in America, which was Psycho and Genesis. I wanted to try an on-site super crack in the gunks which a friend of mine had done with one fall, so I knew it's possible. Hmm. That was 12C. Uh, he'd done the quickest descent to that, so I thought, I want to go and do, I want to on-site uh, Supercrack, do Psycho and Genesis, and then go to Joshua Tron and try and do Equinox, which right. I think, I don't know if it'd been, it might have been led once, but I'm not sure. But I know that back here in Yenera, I'd spent 
three days trying to top rope the thing. Wow. An American climber I met before I went there, he told me not to try it because I wouldn't do it and I'd cut my fingers to shreds. So that really got me going. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. just what He's like, don't try that, you won't do it. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so how I'm curious, how was bouldering fitting in at this point? Because you talked about reading Master of Rock and I, I know John Gill had a massive influence on you. Were, were John's, was John's legacy and some of his boulder problems, were those things on your radar for that first trip to the States? Uh... No, not really, but I really wanted to. I really wanted to go there and do the problem. But I, John Gilton had an influence, but everybody had an influence because I just read all the magazines and mm. I'd read one month's magazine and it'd be Mark Huden and Max Jones doing the Phoenix. And I'd be like, I want to be Mark Huden and Max Jones. And, <laughs> and I'd put a headband on and I'd climb in white trousers. And then, then the Maximum <laughs> Next magazine had come out and it'd be some other guy and I want to be him. And I'd dress up like him. So everybody had an influence. I was really into bouldering and bouldering wasn't the norm. Nobody went bouldering. Uh, and I spent that winter just traversing around this cave and making all these eliminates when everybody else was going climbing and everybody thought I was nuts just going bouldering. Um, but my, as we all know now, if you do a lot of bouldering, your power goes through the roof. And I, my endurance was always quite good, so I needed to work on my weaknesses and more bouldering. So by doing a lot of that, my climbing it, it just went th through the roof. Mm. Uh but it was fantastic to go to America the first time. We started out in the gunks. Then we went to Boulder. We stayed in a fantastic house on, I think it was North 11th Street. And there was a guy called Skip Gur in there, Bob Haran, John Middendorf. Everybody who's in there were climbers. We dust on the floor and we, you know, and you know, we just had dreamt everything was just climbing from the morning what you woke up. Everybody taught climbing and it was just a fantastic house. And I'd climb all day and then every evening I'd walk up to Flagstaff and go bouldering and do, you know, I did a lot of second ascents of John Gill problems. Uh, I think I did quite a few second ascents of his problems, which was really exciting for mm. me. Uh, and then we met up with a guy called Mark Wilford uh, in Fort Collins, who was the main man there. He lived there and he, he knew everything. So he went there with him and then he showed us a lot of the John Gill problems and we actually got the book and went through the book and did all the photos in the book of the of the problems. So I did <laughs> I'd done all the problems in Fort Collins with him and he go, That's that problem. You'd look at a picture of Gill on it, then you'd do it. Wow. So that was very exciting. It was really cool. Yeah, because that's time. That's how it was. I mean it's like it's it's obvious, but it's hard to appreciate that fully, just that you had to know someone or meet someone that could take you to the thing because there was no mountain project on the internet you know no guidebooks for this stuff i imagine you're just yeah there were no guidebooks it's all no hearsay nothing yeah, yeah yeah you could go then kind of find the stuff but you needed to go with somebody who knew some of the problems so you could get to the fatty calf and do the pinch and some of those problems but you couldn't find the more obscure ones so it was fantastic going then skip and had a car so he gave us a lift there um because we didn't have a car, obviously. So getting a lift there, I think we went there two or three times and that was always really exciting. And uh, it, it, it was a great time. I think they had a nightclub there. So we went out one night and it was, what was it? It was something like $5 to get in and then it was free drinks all night. We'd never been had that in England. It was crazy. So that, <laughs> I remember that was a good night. You just couldn't imagine it, a big nightclub and free drinks all night. You're just going, oh, it's mad. Yeah, what, well, 
Well, that's interesting. I mean, you've always been very performance oriented. You wanted to be, you know, the best. You wanted to be the best climber. Was there kind of a party scene along the way? I mean, did were you living like a rock star or was it, was that, you know, kind no, of... No, there a- wasn't a big party at all, really. But it was, you know, it maybe I just remember that night because it was the one night that we Got went it. out. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, there was no, we didn't have any money to drink or, or we well, had no money to do it. I, mean, I never drank anything. <laughs> Because it costs money, so you'd never drink beers. Gotcha. Ever. I mean, if, if we'd have money, we might have, but we, we, you'd never go to a restaurant. I mean, a typical day there, we'd go climbing in El Dorado. We'd drive back from El Dorado. We went to a bar where they had a happy hour. We'd go in, get, get a, a small Coke for like 10p or whatever, you know, for like hardly anything. And then we'd just fill up a little plastic bag up with all the happy hour food. And we'd get peanuts, cheese. Uh, so that's where we got our food from. And then there was a bakery in Boulder, uh, a, a bagel place. And at the end of every day, they put their box up, the bagels they couldn't sell and put them out the back. So we'd go there and get this box of free bagels and they would have cheese from the happy hour meal and have bagels. And that's how we lived. So it was like, we're going, yeah, it's free. <laughs> happy hour was amazing for us. We just go there and just eat <laughs> tons of peanuts and chicken wings and stuff. It, it was mad. That's incredible. Oh man. Um, do any yeah. climbs, do any climbs really stand out from that first trip to the States? Um, any accomplishments or climbs? Uh, yeah. On sighting, on sloping super cracks was really big for me. Uh, that was massive. Um, but it was something I trained so hard for doing crack climbs and stuff like that. I, I can still remember that and shaking out on the jug, on the lip, after I'd done the crux and thinking, right, I've got to do this this top bit and then shaking out and then finally getting to the top. It, it was amazing for me because it was such a big goal. It's, I think it was like 12C or something like that. Uh, back then, nobody on sighted, you know, that kind of grade. Mm. Uh, so doing that and then doing Psycho and Genesis. Um, I remember trying Psycho one day with Skip and Chris Gould, who I went with. Uh, I think I had two goes on it and it was really cold. So I lowered off because there was three of us on the belay and Skip and Chris tried it. And then I went back the next day and did it first go. And I can remember very clearly with my hand reaching for the lip and it was like in slow motion. I could see my hand getting to the jug and before I got the jug, I knew I was going to do it. And I was just remember thinking, I'm going to do psycho. I'm going to do psycho. I'm <laughs> gonna, I got the jug and I got, I've done psycho. I've done second ascent of psycho. I've done it. It was, it, it was, it was just amazing. It was very, very exciting. It was really exciting. Great times, you know, with, and no worries, you know, you had no, you know, I didn't have a mortgage, I didn't have a car, I didn't have kids, I had nothing, I had no money, I had no worries. You just out there uh, climbing. It was fantastic. Were you a superstar at the time or was it just this core group of people that knew how important this stuff was that you were doing? There were no superstars then. Yeah. <laughs> there, were, there, there, no, there wasn't any any real, I mean, maybe John Backer had an aura about him. Um, I was very excited to meet him the first time. Um, but no, there was no, we weren't superstars or anything like that. But I can remember meeting back and he had a real aura about him and he, he climbed in sort of white Kung Fu pants and stuff. In fact, the first time I met him was in Joshua Tree and we were trying a 511 crack and we just got there. We're knackered from like two days driving and I was just climbing up and then John walked over uh, and he had his shirt off. He had these white karate pants on. He had a, a cap on turned backwards. And he's like, hey, are you Jerry Muffalat? 
or something. He got my name totally wrong. He knew what my name was, but he said it all right. He goes, ah, cool like that and then he walked in front of us and soloed the climb we were roping up to do oh man can you imagine that yeah he just soloed it so you can imagine there's nobody on the crag nobody back at all but there's two people climbing a crag and he chose our climb pushed in front of us and soloed it and then i i led it with a big fight nearly puking up and like <laughs> uh so it was pretty pretty funny but we became good friends after that Mm. Uh, and he was very helpful in my climbing career. Uh, but it was, was pretty funny. <laughs> it seems yeah. like that time, like that was more of a, uh, that was a part of the culture was like the burning off, you know, like I'm going to burn this guy off and I don't want to get burned off by these other climbers. And did yeah. you, th did you thrive on that? Like you seem like you kind of thrive on competition. Well, I don't remember it being like that, but I did an interview for a, uh, I think it might be even on YouTube somewhere. I did an interview for, some guy who did a film and he's got, what do you love about climbing? I go, well, I love burning people off. <laughs> <laughs> I just well, love burning people off. When do, how old were you? When, I'll when never did it you, down. When did you say that? Uh, 19. I was 19. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love the competition. I just love burning people off. But I don't really remember myself being like that, but I guess I must have been, you know, youthful and loving burning people off, I guess, because I said it. But uh, it wasn't all about that. But I, I guess you're competitive, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, did, I did enjoy that. that well, you also, years, but... you also just have this confidence about you. Like you were made for the spotlight in a way. And I can imagine that if you hadn't found your stride in rock climbing, you, you would be a rock star. You'd be the other type of rock star and you'd be like the front man <laughs> to some famous punk band or something, you know, like you're just... You've not heard me sing, have you? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you'd be the drummer. I could see you being the drummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be nice. Yeah. I did, I did like, I didn't have no beat Sean. I did like being at the center of attention and uh, you're not supposed to say you like burning people off, but it was, <laughs> it's a great, it's a great feeling in it when you're there and, <laughs> you know, people are, you know, all the best people are trying something. You walk straight off, quick chalk up and piss up it. You know, it's, it's, it's a good feeling, isn't it? Mm. But I just generally, I just generally love climbing. If there was nobody there to burn off, I still climb every day. If there, if there was nobody else there, you know, I, I did a lot of climbing by myself, all my bouldering. Nobody else bouldered uh, back in the early 80s. I did it all on my own and, and I loved it. Was it the first thing? I mean, in your book, you're very open about this. You talked about really struggling with academics in school and you were pretty good at sports. Uh, was climbing the first thing that you were really good at? Is that why, is that part of why you latched onto it so strongly? Um, no, I was pretty, I was pretty good. I was pretty, pretty good at running. I was pretty good at cross country. Okay. I won the area championship and I had school records for doing cross country, uh, which would be kind of five mile races. Uh, I was pretty good at that, and I was pretty good at rugby. So I won the rugby cup, oh, wow. and I was in the first team for the school when I was a junior. So I was really into running, and I was quite, you know, quite good at those two things. It was only a small school, but yeah, I, I was good at those things. Uh, but once I found climbing, I, I just ditched them, and <laughs> I, I, you know, I never did, wanted to do cross country races and. <clears throat> I was quite good at cricket, and I remember one weekend 
uh, it was a Saturday. I wanted to go climbing, and I got put into the into the first team for cricket. And we had to drive an hour to play this other school at cricket, and I was in such a bad mood. I was stinking. I was just did not want to play. Anyway, when I came back, it got to the headmaster, and I got called in to see the headmaster, and I got a bollocking saying, you know, if you represent the school, you give it everything. And I heard you weren't trying. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. But you know, I wanted to go climbing, and that's all I could think about. Mm. That that was. The thing for men, I ditched once I found crime, I ditched everything else and, and totally got into that. Something that's so amazing about your career and that snapshot in time maybe snapshot's the wrong word because you know it's decades of, of your climbing career but you just you were at the top of the game and rode the front end of climbing through such a massive progression i guess like like climbing expanded yeah, and grew huge. Yeah, huge. yeah the standards went up more in your time as a climber than any other time and you know from doing 12c on sites and that being one of the best accomplishments in climbing at the time to ultimately climbing you know 14b 14c that's just incredible yeah. change in the sport um so there's so many things we could talk about along that journey but i would just love to hear from your perspective as you look back on your life of climbing what are some of the biggest milestones? Like, what are some of the accomplishments or climbs that really stand out? Well, I think for, for me, the big changes were it was nobody had a car, everybody dosed out, and, and, and we just went climbing. That was sort of early 80s. Then we went to, to, to France, and then we saw red pointing routes where you practice them bolt to bolt them. That's when sort of grades went up quite dramatically because you would spend uh, longer on route. So we weren't necessarily climbing harder, but you're, you're spending longer on routes and you were trying hard moves. You'd sit off, so, you, so you'd go to failure more. So when you're just doing trad routes, you're not really going to failure. But if you're trying red points and you're sitting on the bolts, you're going to failure every day that you climb. And you go to, you know, off, off. Uh, when you're doing track stuff, you're not doing that. So when you're going to failure more and you're trying harder moves, that was a big progression in climbing. And then I'd say the next big progression was late 80s uh, when we started building uh, indoor cellar gyms. So that was that really changed massively because back in England, um, we couldn't really climb in the winter. Uh, and then we went from not doing anything in the winter, really, except we had a tiny little wall, which was five metres long by two metres high with a little balcony, which was half a metre. So if it rained, it stayed dry. But if it rained and it was windy, it got wet. <laughs> uh, we used to go traversing on this wall all the time uh, and then we'd do pull-ups. So we went from traversing on the wall to doing pull-ups. Uh, then in the about, I think it's around 88, I bought a house with a cellar and I built a horizontal wall and a 45 degree wall. Well, that 45 degree wall with a kickboard at the bottom, that they're still around now and they're still the best training thing. So having that and training indoors all winter, our grades went through the roof. Mm. So we went, you know, at the end of that week, at the end of that, we were probably climbing 8C. Well, not probably climbing, we were climbing 8C plus. Wow. Liquid Amber's given 8C plus now. Um, and I think it would have been another two years if we hadn't had those things. But to be able to put a heater on, turn the radio on, and then meet all your friends and sit in the warmth and go bouldering, uh, was that really changed climbing. 
So they were the big progressions, really, of going from the early 80s. And all that, that and, st- and boot development as well. Mm. So having sticky rubber and boots. So the big thing was, yeah, sticky rubber, boots, and being able to try trade in the winter, and then and then going to failure and red points. So that's why I think it just progressed really quickly. And then we got sponsorship, and then we we got cars, and we could travel to the crags. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I, made it easier. I love the film, uh, The Real Thing. I've watched that a number of times. And that footage, you know, this is like 96, so this is a few years later. But at this yeah. point, you guys had built an indoor climbing gym in the schoolroom. And that yes. footage of you and Ben just climbing on the boards and campusing and stuff is just, it's like the stuff of legend. It's its incredible. Yeah. And I got a question from a listener about this. I, I really love this question, and I had wanted to ask you something along the same lines. So I'll read this question from Chris. What do you see climbers doing today, as far as training goes, that you wish you had known about back in you know mid, mid-80s, late-80s, early-90s, if anything? Would you go back and change anything about how you guys were training back then? Yeah, I think I would. Not so, not so much while we were in the schoolroom, but before we had the schoolroom. But if you go back a couple of years, when we first had fingerboards, uh, we had a horizontal board and we'd spend a lot of time doing footless problems. So we just figured if you climb the whole winter without using your feet, when the summer comes along and you start putting your feet on, everything is going to get easier. <laughs> so we did a lot of footless stuff hanging straight down. Um, kind of crazy, really. Um, uh, and the, the actual holes that we, we were using, they were they're really, really tough on your tendons. So we've got quite a few injuries there. Were you making them, making your own holds? Yeah, so yeah, so I just went to a hardware store and I bought a load of uh, you know, like um handles for opening cupboards. <laughs> like these cupboard things. So I got these these handles for making that when you open a cupboard or a drawer and I just turned them upside down, screwed them on the board. <laughs> and then I, I got I got a banister rail wow. and I cut the banister rail up into sections and I screwed and put that on. Um so we just got we just got wooden holes, and then I got some skirting board, and that had a lip on it, and I turned it back to front and put that on, and that had a nice little lip on it. So we did go to a hardware store and just buying loads of bits of wood, and think, oh, that's pretty cool, mm. and then get bits of half 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 round moon dowling and screwing that on. So I, th- I think so much, not so much. In the end, we were doing the right type of problems. So the, the problems we were doing in the school in that video, I think were really good. And we were doing circuits, but that was a little bit after we were doing the first stuff. Um, so I wouldn't really have changed that much, too much on then. Um, I think maybe we, we went to failure a lot. So we'd go really hard to were absolutely goosed. And then you'd need quite a bit of rest from that. So maybe I would have stopped in retrospect, maybe five or 10 minutes before, not go to failure so you could train the next day. But I, I loved I loved going to failure and being absolutely knackered, getting home and just sitting down and going, oh, man, I'm totally goosed, I can't move. You know, I, I, I like that feeling. It's a great feeling, mm. but it's not always best. I think, you know, it might be better to stop a little bit earlier so you can, so you can do more. So climbing's come a lot, but... You know, that, that if, if anything, it was, yeah, the, the types of holes we were using, which gave us injuries and doing a lot of footless stuff, that wasn't the best thing. Okay, okay. I mean, I just, going back to the schoolroom and what you guys kind of landed on, how you refined your training, it's so simple. Like, it's just a lot of time on a spray wall that's, you know, very similar to the moon board now. And I had a whole conversation with Ben about yeah. this, and he's yeah. kind of trained that way ever since. 
It's so simple. And I, I think one of the challenges of our current day is that we have so much information and so many things, so many ideas we get exposed to through, you know, podcasts like this one or through Instagram. Yeah. Um, it gets very cluttered. I think it's easy to overcomplicate training. I wonder if you have perspective on, you know, has anything been lost? What, like, what were the things that you guys were doing right that you think that maybe some people these days are missing? Uh, anything like that come to mind? Uh, not really. I mean, I think I think one of the, the, the main keys for all of it is having real desire and enjoying it. You've really got to, you've got to enjoy it. You've got to enjoy it. You know, if, if, if I was going to give advice to people, if they're battering their head against the, the wall and not really wanting to go uh, and train and do stuff, then I'd say you're doing the wrong thing. You're not, you're not doing the right type of training. So say you're, you've got a winter and you've got a 45-degree board and you're trying to do all this hard stuff and you just hit a wall and you're not really improving and you feel like getting injured and you're not looking forward to going. I'd just say change it, go to another wall, try and find another place to do, you know, maybe just do some top roping for a couple of weeks, see if you enjoy that. But the main thing is, is try and enjoy it. But for me, I would never, I would never back in the 80s, boulder all year. I'd boulder for maybe two months mm. and then I'd do roots for two months and then I'd do this and I'd go, oh, and then I'd go, oh, I want to do roots all the time. Then I get bored of doing roots, then I go bouldering. So I'd always change things around. Um, so that's the thing. You, you remember to enjoy it. And if you're not enjoying it, you probably want to change it around and do something that you are enjoying. <clears throat> and I think you'll get better improvements like that. Mm. Because you've got, to, you've got to enjoy it. I mean, climbing is, you know, climbing is supposed to be fun, isn't it? Yeah. And sometimes you can get so buried down in the thing, you get so intense and you, and you get all locked in. You, you don't really want that. So that's what I'd advise. That and looking after stretching your fingers, stretching a lot and, and trying to avoid injury and stuff. Yeah, I diet like I did of rice, <laughs> <laughs> rice and curry powder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine what you could have done if you'd had some meat and vegetables along the way, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And stretched and had a climbing walk. That, well, that is boots. that's something. Uh, and, and I, um, I've been rereading your book, but I'm a very slow reader, and I haven't gotten to this part yet. So this memory is a few years old, and I don't remember the details. But one thing that just really stood out from your book i'd love you to fact check it at one point were you guys like living in a cave full of like sheep turds in the winter in the uk and living off of like you had like baguettes and jam and that was the only thing that you guys were eating and i mean the standard was like 13c at the time and you guys were living in a cave in the uk in the winter and i just remember reading that thinking like Man, we've all gotten soft. Like it, it, it's yeah. you know, for people. Well, the, the place, the place you referred to, that was that was at Pentruin. So when we went to Pentruin in Wales, that's where I did Liquid Amber, which was the first AC plus, probably. Um, that was a cave there, and it did have sheep turned in the bottom. Because <laughs> the sheep used to sit, and it was totally dry, and it was a great place to sleep. It was fantastic. You, you'd go into town. And Landudno is a big holiday town with everybody on holiday and it's got a pier and they're eating ice cream and candy floss. And then you just walk round the corner five minutes and then you're there right in the, at this cave with all this really intense climbing. Uh, it was a fantastic time. Uh, there was a cafe there called Paracellas and the actual, that cave is called Paracellas. And the woman from Paracellas Cafe felt sorry for all the climbers. So we'd go there in the morning and she said, well, if you help put all the tables and chairs out for the cafe, do that. And then you can come in and have breakfast. Uh, 
So we'd go there in the morning, put the tables and chairs out, and then we ate in that cafe for free. She never charged just anything. Oh, that's so great. Even at lunchtime, you'd go in and you'd go have an ice cream and have a pasty, and she'd be like, oh, you know, you're okay, you boys, you can have that. <laughs> uh, and then I went, uh, I did a first ascent in that Paracellas cafe, and I called it Paracellas after after that cafe because they looked after us i mean you look back on it you're just going it's amazing we just lived there for nothing and all we did she just felt sorry for us you know, you're <laughs> going, you can have that it was fantastic wow uh, so so that was at that place where we dossed out um where was the other place and then we had we had a, a load of different places where we dossed did you live in a construction site like an abandoned construction site at one point uh that was when i first went there yeah, that was the vicarage at stony middleton so we used to go and it was a it was an it was a building that they were renovating. So it had no roof on it or anything like that. And uh, there was loads of building stuff all over the place. And we'd go there, we'd go from the pub. When I say we went to the pub, we didn't drink in the pub, we just sat in the pub. So we'd go from the pub and then we'd go to the vicarage and we'd like all doss down there. Uh, and the builders never mind. They'd come in the morning and say, "Come on, lads, it's time to go." And we'd pick, pack all the stuff up. But they didn't mind us sleeping there because it kept all their stuff safe, so nobody come and nick any of their building material. Wow! So they were totally they were totally cool about it. They didn't mind. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was the vicarage, and then we had a load of different ones. We had the we had the the vicarage. We had another one called the Land of the Midnight Sun. That was a garage, and they had street lighting outside. So we called it the Land of the Midnight Sun because it never got dark there. So I didn't like that one. And then we had the Lich Gates to the graveyard. So you had a church, a graveyard, and in the entrance to the graveyard, they had a, a, a canopy. So I used to sleep there quite a lot. Oh, wow. Which is kind of airy because, you know, especially when you're by yourself and you're in the entrance of the graveyard and, yeah. and stuff. But that, that was quite, they were the three main places where we dosed. oh man it's just incredible i mean just this you know what you guys were doing at the time like most people listening to this podcast it's probably beyond many of those people's life ambitions to climb like 13c you know 8a 8a plus something like that you know like we're all living in sprinter vans it's like oh i don't know i didn't get perfect sleep last night i don't know if i'm going to be able to send my project and it's just so it's such an inspiration and and just um such great perspective to read to read about what you guys were doing just you loved oh, it so much yeah, i can't tell you how hard it was i mean to, to get from 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 dossing there you'd have breakfast if you wanted to go climbing say you had a car it would take you 15 minutes to get to the crag but 10 or 15 minutes for us it took us two hours so we had to hitch from stony we had to hitch up the road probably five miles well, that might take an hour to get that lift. And then you'd get dropped off on the main road. And then it was a monster walk. It was a two-hour walk to get to the cliff from there. It, you know, it was, it was a monster. And we, we, bearing in mind, we had, in our rucksack, we had a rope, all the trad gear. It wasn't just bolts. So we'd have all the friends, wires, all the trad gear, hexes, nuts. Uh, for some reason, we never... Uh, stashed dog sleeping bags and carry mats so you'd have your sleeping bag your carry mats all your clothes or everything your toothbrush well you didn't brush your teeth but you had all that <laughs> stuff plus all your climbing gear so you had a massive rucksack hitching you'd walk all the way down this thing come all the way back but you didn't have anything to do so if it took you two hours to get there you didn't really mind um, wow. we just take a loaf of bread I can't even remember taking anything to drink really we'd just drink water and a loaf of bread. I don't know how he did it. 
But the, these places, you know, I, I take the dogs for a walk there now and I look at it and I think, man, this is one of the most beautiful walks you could ever do. A beautiful stream and mm. flowers and valleys. But at the time it was just, you know, you just like put your head to the ground and just trudge along this shitty valley and you're going, this is a ball lake. But, you know, you go back there, you know, they're supposed to be the best walks in the country. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, wow. it, was, it was crazy times, really. But it was it was the norm, and that's if you're a climber, that's what you did. So you didn't. Nobody else was doing anything different. I didn't. Nobody had a car. Nobody had a car. Nobody got a lift or anything. So that's just the norm. <laughs> you mentioned uh, you mentioned liquid amber. I'd love to ask: Was there like was that route a culmination? Does it feel like a culmination of your life of climbing, or is there any route that that really feels like? I don't know, that stands above the rest as far as something that really you had to work really hard for that felt like a huge accomplishment. Um, well, felt liquid like amber is special for me because it was, um, I went to school in Dandudno, so that's where I started my climbing. Mm. And then I used to cycle down. Um, we weren't supposed to go climbing at all at the weekend, but I used to cycle down, meet Ant my mate Andy Pollitt, and we used to go climbing. I mean, the, the school had no idea of what we were doing. So we'd get cycle down there and go climbing at the weekend, super dangerous stuff, and then cycle back. At, you know, it's going to be back for six o'clock. So that's where I started my climbing. So it was really nice to do a route there. And then I, I, it was after my injury. So I'd been climbing, you know, good up until sort of 84. Then I got my injury. Then I didn't climb for two years. Then I started again. Uh, and then to come back from you know, thinking you're never going to climb again and then you're climbing again and thinking I'm never going to climb good again and then you're climbing good again and then from going climbing good again to doing sort of the sort of the hardest routes in the world. That that was that was wow. special for me to do that route. I love that route. It was very good. And it's a, you know, it's a classic route. I think I gave it 8C, but it's given 8C plus now. Wow. Yeah, 14C for people listening. We should make it. It was the first one in the world, if it, you know, if it's 8C plus. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned your injuries. So if I recall, that was severe elbow tendinosis in, in both elbows? Uh, yeah, I had a compressed nerve in my elbow. So oh, I had wow. a compressed nerve in my elbow. Uh, that was in America. So I, st I spent, uh, John Backer, very kindly, was making a lot of money from Boreal's. He was the exporter, importer and exporter. Uh, he very kindly paid for me to go and see a doctor in Los Angeles. And this guy was supposed to be the best surgeon, the best doctor, the best physio. Uh, so I spent uh, a couple of months living in Los Angeles, his mum's house. And uh, I'd go down and all these famous Olympic athletes were there. And I think he did Michael Jackson's knee and all these famous people at these great big football. So I went there and he paid for that, which was really generous of me. Mm. So I spent a couple of months there. It didn't get any better. I came back to England. I didn't get any better there. Then I went to Germany. Didn't get any better there. I spent the winter skiing uh, and working in a ski shop, waxing skis and doing bindings and stuff, which was pretty crap, but it meant I could go skiing. And then a friend of mine knew a professor who was a surgeon in Munich. And um, he said, I'll have a look at it and, and do it for nothing. You know, I'll find out what's happening there and I'll, I'll do the operation for nothing. So he operated on one, operated on the other. And then a few months later, it got better. Wow. Crazy. And then, you know, it was crazy. I never thought I'd climb again. It was a really tough time. I never thought I'd climb again. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I wanted to climb. I couldn't. 
it was a terrible time. Mm. But then, and then I had the operations and then it didn't really get better. And then I remember seeing a physio in England. He said, just go for it and do everything on them. They're better at psychological. And no way. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if it was or not. It was just this really butch kind of like, you know, one of those kind of old soldier <laughs> type guys. And he goes, what are you doing, man? Get on it, get on it, just push it, just push through. And I was like, oh, I never thought about that because everybody else is look after it. He was like, just do it everything just do everything <laughs> just go for it you, i think you're okay wow so, and then i was like oh yeah i'll try that and then in, <laughs> in time in time it got better wow do you think i mean in hind hindsight's 2020 as we say do you think in hindsight that injury or those injuries were avoidable was it just from climbing too much training too much oh probably uh, yeah for sure i mean yeah. even about, yeah, i'm sure they're avoidable i mean if you, if you think from 17 18, 19, 20, I'd never even heard of a rest day. Never even heard of it. Never even heard of a rest day. I promise you, never heard of it. Like, a rest day? What? You're like, what? rest? So resting will help you climbing? Oh, no. No, no, no. Much wow. better to climb every day. Uh, so I, I never had rest days. I never stretched, ever. I never really warmed up. Um, oh, wow. The diet was horrendous. We slept slept on a bloody freezing cold floor in a sleeping bag and dust out all winter. I mean, I think it was a combination of all those things, you know, um, kind of built up. Mm. <laughs> but it's not not conducive to healthy living and good muscles <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> How old were you when you went through that injury process? Uh, I was, um, I think it was about 24. Okay. Okay, yeah. so then you, 20, you were able to... You were able to come back and have what, like another decade of of hard climbing. Yeah, I, you know, I came back. I, you know, I came back and I sort of when I stopped climbing, I think the hardest was what was it like eight A plus or something? Yeah, eight A plus, maybe eight B. Uh, and then when I started again, it was eight B plus. Wow. Which you'd now be given eight C, eight C in today's grades. Wow. Because all, all those all those eight pluses are now they're given grade harder. Oh really? Because yeah, grades have gone up a little bit, haven't they? I think. Um, and then competition started. That that started when I, you know, so when I was injured, competitions had started. Um, I went to the first competition in Bardonecchia. They invited me to go. Um, they paid my airfare from America, which was really good at them, and I couldn't climb. So that's oh, how wow. I got back from America because I didn't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> so they offered to pay that, and I, I went and watched that one. I thought, oh, well, that looks pretty cool. But I was injured, I didn't climb. And then I think a year later, I started, you know, doing some of the competitions. So that, you know, that all changed in the 80s. I mean, it was an amazing decade, really. Mm. What do you think about it? <laughs> One thing that's that's really interesting about your story to me, you know, because I'm, I'm 32 and I hope to climb for a lifetime. Um, I still have very big goals for myself personally in climbing and hope to progress for Good. a long time. But then I think if I, I have no idea, but if, I imagine that if I were t able to accomplish all of my aspirations in climbing, I would still, I still just hope to do it forever. I just, I just love doing it. It's yeah. really interesting to me that you stepped away from climbing, especially hearing you say how devastating it was to have climbing taken away during those injuries. What, yeah. what caused you to quit climbing? What, what, what was it that well, led you really to walk away? So much, I didn't really just go, right, I'm quitting. You know, well, I never thought that. It was kind of, I'd done my last project um was that liquid amber I, I, uh no no that was a boulder problem called was it the joker or the ace oh, okay 
the yeah. ace, I think it was, on, on Stanage. It did a little bowl of the problem. I wanted to do that. Um, I did that one. Then I thought, do I want to get another project? I'd been monked around with sponsors where I thought I had a sponsorship deal. Uh, and then they ditched me at the last minute. And then you're thinking, oh, man, bloody sponsors. Um, they're tough. So I thought I'd I really love to earn my money independently. So I thought, well, either I'm going to be a climber for my whole life and I'm going to rely on sponsorship and going to trade shows and will you sponsor me, will you do that? Or I could leave it, do some climbing, but I want to do other things. You know, I want to, I really enjoyed surfing. I thought it'd be great to go surfing. I could never go surfing when I was climbing because you can't have a rest day and go surfing because you'd be knackered. So I thought it'd be really good to do, just to do other things. And I wanted to have kids and um, when we have made the decision to have kids with my wife, I thought, well, I'll just step back a little bit. I wanted to earn my money independently. So I started doing property stuff. I already had the climbing wall. Uh, so it was a more... In- I just wanted my independence and I wanted to try and make my own money so I wasn't relying on, reliant on other people. And I wanted to be able to free. And it's a real, real addiction. I mean, it is hard, hard, hard to stop climbing. It took me at least two years of not feeling guilty every single day that I wasn't climbing. <laughs> you just feel guilty because you put so much pressure. So every day you go, oh, I should be climbing. I mean, really, should I be climbing? Why should I? But you just got this thing of like, oh, I'm a bit of a, you know, oh, I should be climbing today. It was wow. a good day. You feel, you feel bad about yourself. It takes a long time to get out of it. But I was still interested in it. And I always, always went for a walk along the crags and looks at the crags and, you know, even now, I still take the dogs for a walk and I love to go walk around where the cliffs are. I, I go there when it's quiet or when it's raining and stuff, so there's no people around and stuff. Um, and now I go climbing. I just go climbing indoors and I just go climbing and I maybe once a week to see some friends and do it as a social thing. Um, oh, that's great. I went climbing today for an hour and stuff. But I like <laughs> going down there and you see people and it, you know, it's, it's just nice to hang out and, and chat to people and uh, go, to the, go to the indoor wall and there's people there, so I still like that. Mm. Did it leave any kind of a hole behind as far as, I mean, you had so much drive and focus and such, you were so goal-oriented in climbing. Did you, were you able to fill that space with other things or was it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, with, with trips. Because for me, climbing was about trips, going away and doing stuff and being with mates. So, mm. you know, I, I had, you know, I, I went surfing all over the world. I think I had four boat trips to Indonesia. I went to Nicaragua, Costa Rica. Oh, wow. So you'd organise trips to go surfing. If I hadn't had that and I'd got a job, well, it would have been bloody horrendous. <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> you know, I had goals and I thought, well, I earned a bit of money, then I'll go surfing there and then I'll go and do that. And, you know, I was never a great surfer, but when I got into surfing, I surfed more than a pro. <laughs> That's what I said. He goes, Jerry surfs more than a pro. <laughs> they will take the mickey out of me because I was traveling all over the place and, and, and doing stuff like that. So the one replaced the other and the two are very similar. Um, so it, it would have, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I'd done what I wanted to do in climbing, really. Um, and I, I didn't want to have another goal, another project, and get locked into that. And in retrospect, I'm very glad that, that I left it and managed to make uh, be independent. Mm. Oh, that's great. And I, I like doing wheel. I like wheeling and dealing and doing business stuff. <laughs> I, and I always think that I don't. I always think that I want to retire, but something else comes along, and I always think, "Oh, I'll do that." So I'm, I guess <laughs> I must. I must. I must enjoy it because I just keep doing it. <laughs> and is it is it mostly um, real estate oriented? Uh, I do a bit of real estate and a bit of the climbing wall stuff. 
you know, have it at the foundry, uh, which is a climbing wall in Sheffield. Oh, right. That was the first, that was the first climbing wall in, in the country of its type with interchangeable holes, plastic holes, T-nuts. So that was the first one back in 91. And I set that up with Wild Country. And that was a big risk. You're thinking, now you think, well, it's, it's obvious. But back then you're thinking, are people going to pay to go climbing? Mm. You know, it's like doing a climbing wall in Boulder, Colorado, and there's cliffs all over the place. And you're thinking, why would people pay to go climbing indoors when they can just go to Flagstaff or Colorado or, or something like that? So you're thinking, oh, are people really going to pay for it, you know? And then we opened the first week. It rained every day. And nobody came in, and I was going, I knew it. it. I knew it would work. I'm going, I knew people wouldn't pay to go climbing. We failed. We spent all this money. And then after a month or so, people started climbing indoors. Wow. Uh, and, and it works. And obviously, now there's climbing walls all over the place. Yeah. But at the time, that, that was a big risk, and that was fun. So <laughs> I, I like doing the climbing wall stuff. How did writing come into your life? Um, you've written two books now, Revelations, which we've already talked about, which is kind of your autobiography, your journey of climbing. Um, but then Mastermind, I'd, I'd love to hear what led you to want to write that book. But have you always written? Have you know? Do you enjoy that? Uh, How I've did writing? A lot. I always write. I always used to write articles. So I used to write okay. a lot of articles when I was climbing. So I used to write uh, two or three articles every year. Um, I should say that Revelations was done with a ghostwriter. So I did that with Nar Grimes. Oh, great! Uh, so yeah, so I, I did it with him. I didn't write that. Gotcha. He, he wrote it, but then, but then you kind of. You don't really write it, but you go, oh, I wouldn't write it like that. I'd say it like that. So we did it very closely together. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of fun doing that. Um, I've always been interested in sports psychology. Um, I kind of wanted to do a book on sports psychology. Uh, and then I was in Germany and I was speaking to a guy called Hannes who owned, um, he worked at Cafe Craft. And I was talking about it and he straight away he's going, if you want to do that book, I'll do it with you. We'll do it together. And... Uh, I'll publish it and, and we'll do that. And then we had a meeting. And uh, when he said we'll do it together, I thought we'd write it together. And then he's like, well, off you go. And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> so I actually had to write that thing. Oh, wow. Um, um, so <clears throat> I ended up getting a, a computer with a um, uh, that I could talk into. So okay. I wrote the whole book on like a Siri talking into it. I didn't type any of it. So I just sit there, dictate it into the microphone, and it would type it out, and then I kind of adjust it. So that's how I wrote the book. So that's great. Yeah. And that book yeah. for people I, that I, I, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So that's you know that's how I wrote the book. And I wanted to just put something into climbing and document, and put what I what I'd learned in, into climbing. Yeah. Yeah. Can you describe what Mastermind is for people that aren't familiar with it? It's it's interesting because it kind of reminds me of what I get to do with this podcast. Like you interviewed tons of top climbers and just got to sit down with them and kind of pick pick their brains. Well, what, yeah, what I wanted to do, I wanted to do a book to try and help people with sports psychology to sort of climb well under pressure, enjoy their climbing, being able to know what they should be thinking to perform at their best. So I thought rather than me preach and say, this is what you do, you do this, you do this, you do this. I wanted to help people kind of understand it. And rather than me say, I do this and I do that. I wanted to sort of say, I do this, but also Alex Migos does this and Chris Sharma does this and 
Margot Hayes does this. So I wanted to say, it's not only me who says it, they say it. They all think this. They all think the same thing. So the probability is, if they're all thinking that, that's probably what you should be thinking. So I wanted, because I knew with my name, I knew that if, well, I knew a lot of the top climbers and I knew that they'd help me. So I thought I'm in a great position to say, this is what they think. I mean, what a great thing to think. What does Adam Ondra think when he's about to do his hardest red point? What does he think about just before he's about to climb? I mean, it's it's fantastic. Probably is, you know, Killian Fisher, who's won, I don't know, five world championship. Why does he think he's good at climbing competitions? Why does he think he's better than other people? What does he think about? Does he visualize stuff? And I, I, I documented the whole thing. Mm. Uh, ended up writing the book and then a friend of mine uh, knew a, a, the top professor guy in England for sports psychology. So he's the top professor of the top sports institute who lectures sports psychology. And he very kindly uh, agreed to see me. He was a climber and he'd read Revelations and he goes, oh, yeah, if he wants to come and see me. So I spent um, some time with with Lou and then he really opened up a lot of stuff and I realised bloody hell I don't know what I'm talking about this guy's been you know you know when you see some people you think oh my god this guy's a really bloody clever boat I better <laughs> shut up here because he knows he knows everything and I better just listen it was one of those moments and I was like he was very nice because I'd say oh this and he said well he go well sports psychologists wouldn't really say it like they'd say it a little bit more like that and I'm like oh would they and then I said I changed it a lot of the book mm. so it was a combination of learning and it and it was it was good fun writing it, but it was a lot of work. So you've really got to have a real, you've got to be really motivated to write a book. You really do. I mean, I locked myself away for about three months and worked every day, weekends, everything. Mm. You know, just I just went flat out all winter. It was raining outside, and I'm thinking I've got to finish this by March because when the weather's good, I'm not, I'm not sitting in here and doing this. <laughs> smart, yeah, smart. <laughs> yeah. I I'd wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the book. Um, and, and how it applies to your own experience and how it might apply, how what you learn from the doing that research might apply to people listening. So first off, is there anything that you learned through all of those interviews, you know, th those conversations and putting the book together that you wish you had known when you were climbing at your peak or trying to push standards, climb hard routes, competitions, anything like that? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, there's definitely things, things like know more about visualization how that links to to how you move and how your muscles work the visualization i did visualize stuff thinking about how you can concentrate better and narrowing you know one of the things like the less things you think about the more you're concentrating mm. so if you're thinking if you're a say you're a beginner climber you're going to be thinking about um how to do moves falling off how to get your foot up. You're going to be thinking loads of different things. And so that's going to be hard to concentrate because you're thinking of so many different things. If When you're a better climber, you're not thinking about hitting the ground, how you're going to land, um, how your foot's going to move up and whether it's going to go into that foot or price because you know it's going to do it and it's just to take him for granted. You know that if you fall off, if you're leading and you've got a rope on, you're not going to hurt yourself. So you need to think about it. So then you're more narrowing your focus down to one thing. So if you can narrow your focus down to one move or one thing, which is called a process goal, that's going to help your climbing. So narrowing your focus, but just being aware of it and thinking, right, what is the one thing 
I've got a three move bowler problem here. What's the one thing, one thing, if I could pick one thing, what would it be that's going to get me up that climb? What's the hardest thing? Is it getting that older move my foot up or what is it? Or even on a red point of a hundred moves, I've got one thing. What's the one thing that is going to get me up that climb? That's the move. That's the thing I've got to focus on and just focus on that and let, let your unconscious skills do the rest of it mm. and just go, okay, well, my foot probably will go there. I'll probably do that. I'll probably do that. Forget that. And I'm just going to concentrate on that. So I think, I think that would help climbers and, that, you know, and building confidence as well. Knowing how, you know, repetition of success will build your confidence. So thinking about it, talking about it and doing it <clears throat> will really help your confidence. But if you're flailing on something and falling and falling and falling, just sometimes it's best to go, this is really smashing my confidence. Let's leave it, go away and come back another day and kind of forget that. Mm. So things like that. So if you can get confidence and concentration, that will help your climbing. And in the book, it tells you how to do that very clearly. And then... In the back of the book, it's got some really good stuff from some of the top climbers about what they think about. And if you read some of them, forget what anything I've said. I mean, there's some stuff in there and you just read it and you think, wow, you know, that's fantastic. You know, some of the stuff that, say, Killian said about, you know, climbing competitions, he said, you know, you get really nervous just before, but you think to yourself, you've got to think climbing's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to try my hardest. That's a given. And that's what I'd say about my climbing is I know from I know from all my climbing, the one thing given is that I'm going to give it everything. So I'm going to give it everything. I'm going to try my hardest. Let's try and enjoy it and let's see where it takes me. Mm. And that is a from from Olympic athletes to from everybody, that's the main, main thing what people think. Try and enjoy it. And if you say to all climbers, what do you think about when you're climbing your best? Nearly every single one said nothing. I'm just enjoying it. So that's the kind of mindset you want to be thinking about, not really thinking about anything too technical. Try and enjoy it. Enjoy the moment and try your hardest. And when I say try your hardest, really try your hardest. You go <laughs> to hell and back. You know, you've got to give mm. everything. <laughs> you might have just answered this. I was going to ask you this question from a listener. This is from uh, FD Climbs is the person that submitted this question. Does Jerry have any tips for maintaining a cool head and dealing with fear of failure when approaching a bouldering or sport project? Do you have anything to add as far as that goes? Yeah, I think I think really just, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I'm not bloody brilliant myself. I've made some big cock-ups. And I spoke to, I remember seeing to Chris Sharman, he proudly told me, oh, I've blown loads through psychologically. You know, people do. But you just got to go, well, that's going to happen. And I remember asking the top sports psychologists, how do you how do you stop, um, you know, fear of failure and stuff? He said, you can't. You can't do it. You just, it's there. Don't even don't even try and don't even try and get rid of it because it's it's that you can't not think it. I mean, I was speaking to a friend of mine. He was um, world champion clay pigeon shot. He'd won the world championship and he'd, he'd spent some time with Tiger Woods um, just on, on on something else. Anyway, he spent uh, some time with with Tiger's uh, sports psychologist and he said to him, I had this shoot off. I had to hit the last two clays to win the world championship. And I had this, this thing there just going, oh, it's just so immense. And he said to him, how do you block it out? And he goes, you can't block it out. It's massive. You, you, you just can't just just accept it and then go to what you need to do 
in our for us what you need to do to do your climb for him it was how do you break those two plates for us it's just go okay i am nervous i am fear of failure can't get rid of that just accept it i'm nervous i'm bricking it yeah okay that's good there's nobody who wants to do a hard climb and ain't nervous there's nobody in a competition trying to win it who isn't nervous it doesn't happen accept it get on with it and go right now that's accepted. I'm bricking myself. I'm shitting my pants and I'm fear of failing. Now, what have I got to try and do? Now, what I've got to try and do is do this climb. So look at the climb, visualize it and just break it down into, you know, into segments of think, what do I normally do when I go climbing? If on a normal day, what would I do? And just go out and, and try and climb. But I think that the main thing is don't try and eliminate all those, all, you know, all that stuff. And mm. just accept it because it's the same for everybody. We, you've all got to deal with it. And, and nobody really likes it. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could go there and not be scared and not be nervous, but it, it happens, doesn't it? What made you the most nervous? Was there a specific climb that really gave you trouble or was it competitions? Do you have a distinct memory? I think com- competitions, I got, I got really nervous in competitions sometimes. You know, when you, when you train really hard for them and, you know, back in the early days, we had to pay all our own expenses and, and travel down there. So, um, you, you know, you think, well, this competition has cost me 500 quid to get to and I've trained really hard for it and you, you want to try and get some prize money to get your money back. That's how I, that's how I thought about them. So I used, to get, I used to get mostly nervous in climbing competitions. I found them quite hard uh, because it was climbing on plastic and, I, you know, I, I was more about doing new routes and having fun with your mates and... You know, for for me, <coughs> the whole thing was all about having a laugh. Then you tie to the bottom and you go, right, now it's serious. And I learned that from, you know, a lot of a, one of, one of a, a really good friend of mine, Ron Kalk, who I climbed with a lot. I really lot for, learned a lot from him. He was just mucking around the whole time. It was great fun. But when he got to the bottom of the climb, he could just switch and go, right, now it's serious. Let's let's try and do the climb. Mm. So that's I, I struggled with that mostly psychologically, I would say. I remember that from your book. I remember you talking about competitions. And I think if I remember rightly, that was what first led you down this path of sports psychology and getting interested. And Yeah, because I failed completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you had a really um, bad string of competitions, but then you were able to turn it around and have some successes. Can you pinpoint anything in particular that you changed in your mindset or that you worked on that helped make that transition and have some successful competitions? Yes. Um, well, I read a book called With Winning in Mind by Lanny Basham. With Winning so, in Mind? With Winning in Mind by Lanny Basham. Okay. So that book changed my life. Wow. So I was really inconsistent. So I might, you know, say, say I'm, I was pretty consistent on 7C plus 8A on site. And then I go for competition, then like fall for 7B. And then I'd like do like a 7C plus. And it was just all over the place. I didn't know what was, what was happening or what I should be thinking. Then I read that book. <clears throat> and that really changed my life and it really made me change uh, the, the the way I thought about myself. So I thought to myself, I don't like competitions. I'm not a competition climber. Uh, I don't climb good in finals. Well, man, that's a, that's going to be pretty frigging hard to do well in a competition if you're telling yourself that the whole time, isn't it? 
So you've got what you've got one guy who says, I love competitions, I climb great in the final. And you've got another guy say, I can climb crap in the in the final. I don't like competitions, I don't like the isolation. So your money every single time is going to be on the guy who says, I love competitions, I climb great in the final, and I don't mind how long I have to wait in the isolation zone. So I had to change my mindset around to mm. thinking, I like climbing competitions, I don't mind how long I wait in the isolation zone. I don't mind how far I've travelled across the world to climb it because I love competitions. <clears throat> so I had to change that mindset about myself and also um, not be – the one thing about competitions, you, you don't – you want to be sort of pessimi pessimistically optimistic. Hmm. So you want to be pessimistic about you thinking about what's going to go wrong. So you're going to think, you know, this could go wrong, this could go wrong, this could go wrong. Think about all the things that could go wrong. What's your response going to be? Know what your response is going to be. And then when you go to the competition, you go, I don't care what goes wrong. I know I'm ready for that. So, for instance, I might be just about to go to the final route. I'm the last climber. I hear the guy on the microphone say, well, the last climber's got to the second to last hole. Out comes Jerry Moffat, and he's got to do the route. He only has one chance, and if he slips off, the first move is out. I mean, whew, you've got to be ready for that and think, right, okay, I've, okay, I've got to do this route, and I know where the guys fall off. So you've got to be ready for all, you know, for things like that. And, and uh but but that's all done weeks before the competition. I mean, it's a bit random how it's explained mm. all that. But no, that no, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that so much of what you just said is relevant for all of us. You know, not just with climbing. It's I mean, that practice of visualizing what might go wrong and focusing on how you're going to respond to it instead of just yeah. I mean, I, I interviewed. Uh, there was a guy. You know, the top climbers, you think the top, top climbers, you think they ain't going to think that, but they do. And you think that guy's won more bloody competitions than anything else. Why is he visualizing about what can go wrong? But they are. Mm. But you think, you think of all the people you think he ain't going to think that. <laughs> Adam Onger ain't going to think that. But the, but that's how, they, that's how they, they, they work things out. And they work through that. And then they can be optimistic when they get to the competition because they know they've thought everything through. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question about the book. You know, you mentioned it's it's not just you saying these things because if Chris Sharma says it and Margot Hayes says it and Adam Andra says it and Alex Mago says it, there's probably something to it. Um, what are a few of the key elements, maybe one to three things, if anything comes to mind, that separate the greatest climbers from the rest of us when it comes to their mindset? I think I think determination determination and drive and the willing the, the willingness to go through all the bad times to get to the good times i think you know it, it, it's tough sometimes and you're not going to say that every day is a great day climbing climbing you know and you just everything's fun you got to you got to work hard at it i'd say that i'd say the fact that they when they climb well they're enjoying it and they're sort of they build up to an optimistic an optimistic attempt at something based on a lot of other stuff that they've done going back weeks before. You know what I mean? If you're optimistic, you think, oh, I'm just going to wing it and have a go. Don't really need to think about visualize stuff. I'm just going to try it. When you fall off and you think, well, I'll fall off, I'll do it next go. Then you do it and you fall off. You're best off visualizing and, and being really prepared for things. Um, so I think those two things and just the, the love of, you know, the love of climbing and wanting to go climbing. 
and all of them are just not one of them wasn't super keen. Mm. Not one of them. I mean, they all loved it, and they all, you know. So, so those things really. I mean, and then a lot of it comes down to genetics, doesn't it? I mean, I, I've met people who climbed and trained harder than me, and they didn't climb as good, but they didn't have the genetics. So some of that, some mm. of it's luck, really, as well. You've got to have the genetics. So you've got to have the genetics, the willpower, and the determination, and and all those things, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably worth reiterating, too, that that's just in the context of the best of the best, talking about the grades. That, I, it, that really is what I'm talking about. That a lot of the things in the book ain't going to help when you start. You know, I talk about having a, you know, a, a pre-climb routine and stuff. That ain't going to help when you start climbing at all. A lot of the things aren't really going to help that much because you, you're dealing with a, trying to get your skill value up there. So you're trying to deal with you're getting strong fingers and getting your footwork moving and stuff like that. So this is more you know, for, for, for top-end stuff, but some of the stuff will help you for runner bomb stuff. And, you know, a lot of the stuff I used was for for getting for seeing sponsors and getting my contracts and mm. doing business deals and stuff. I used to go I used to go and see my sponsors and I go, right, what's, what's the list of things that they might say to me, like, what, it, that, that might put me off? What's my response? What's my response? But why do they want to sponsor me? And then I'd write that list because I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. What if they say this to me? Why didn't you do this? And I go, well, here's why I'm going to do this. So I was really prepared when I went to see them. And I used to think, I've got an hour meeting with the guy from Boreal, and that's going to determine whether I can go climbing for the rest of the year, whether they're going to sponsor me. So I better be bloody ready for mm. every single question they're going to answer me. And I've also got to tell them why I bet than anybody else in the world to sponsor me. Even though I might be thinking, what the hell are they sponsoring for? I'm going to go climbing all year. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. you're thinking, wow, it's, you know, it's too good to be true that they're sponsoring me. But I had to believe that I was really doing them an amazing favour, you know, by climbing in there t-shirt or something yeah you know? oh, that's cool yeah flip it around yeah like so that. everything i did and when i did all my business stuff i always i used to love that visualization and preparation and, and things like that who is this you can use it for all what's in life who is this book for mastermind um, i think it's i think it's for everybody who's sort of interested in climbing so it's a little bit like a recipe book, really. You know what I mean? You can read it and think, oh, that's a cool recipe, but never cook the recipe and put it away. <laughs> and you go, well, that was a pretty good recipe. Well, I've read all the recipes. That looks a tasty meal. <laughs> or you can go, well, I'm going to cook that meal. And you cook it the first time and you've, you've overcooked the fish and you go, I want to do it again. And you want to cook it perfect. So you can take it away from two different things. At the back of the book, it's got uh, a load of short stories from the top climbers, and I said, what's your best day climbing? What's a day that really stands out that might inspire other people? So hopefully people will get inspiration out of the book. And even if they don't like anything in the book, they can read the stuff at the back and think, oh, man, that was a cool day climbing. I aspire to that. So hopefully it's to inspire people and hopefully have, make them have more fun out of their climbing and not got frustrated if things aren't going right. It will 100%, 100% help, 100% help people if, if they choose to take on board what I've said and do some of the things that mm. I've said in the book. No question. Well, I think you just lobbed me up a softball. I have to ask you that question now. Do you have a day of climbing, like a best day of climbing that stands out to you that um, that would inspire people to hear about? Um, 
probably yeah i do i mean once you stick out about winning the, the league's competition uh, in 1989, that was the first indoor climbing competition in Britain. I hate to pick a climbing competition, but that was a special day for me because I'd suffered so much before um, in my climbing. Then I got that book and I worked on the sports psychology stuff. Then it was, the, it was the first ever World Cup climbing competition and it happened to be in England and it happened to be an hour from, from, where, from where I live. Um, I went out that morning and I went to Stony Middleton, that place where I dust in a cave. Uh, and, you know, when I, when I left school at 17 and I hitchhiked there, I went to Stony Middleton that morning. I warmed up at Stony Middleton on the same sort of crappy, damp, sturdy holes uh, right next to the road with the cars going past. Then I went there and warmed up and then I went and won that competition. And that was my first win. That, that was really massive for me. Wow. That was a great day. But also doing things like super cracking the gunks and on-siting Equinox and Joshua Tree and John Backer was there taking photos. I've had a lot, you know, I've had a lot of really great days climbing and that to just mucking around with friends, you know, just, you know, they're all special days. I remember remember just one day just bouldering uh, with Ron Kauk at Stenson Beach just at... Uh, just outside San Francisco, just, just days like that. You're mucking around and there's some kid there bouldering with us and we're all chatting at the end, end of the day. This guy says to her and he goes, has anyone ever told you you look like Ron Cow? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it is Ron Cow. And he's like, oh. <laughs> you know, you remember days like that and they're special and they're not really that much. But I just remember just not really a great, a bit of crappy boulder. We didn't really do very much, but just it's just a fun day you know, kind of mucking around and stuff. So they're, they're all like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days. Mm. But the ones that stand out are probably, you know, Liquid Amber and, you know, the, those times in America very early in my career, they were great. Jerry? Who- it, yeah, one, yeah, one thing I would say to people, if you are a climber, you found a great sport mm. and it's, it's a wonderful life, you know, travelling around. And I say it to, you know, when I meet professional climbers like Alex Migos and say, you you remember this you're a bloody lucky bugger because you're doing <laughs> you're living the dream right now yeah yeah you're living the you're living the dream yeah yeah as far as the lifestyle and the experiences that it provides it really it's really hard to beat isn't it just the places you get yeah. to see and the people you get to meet yeah. and like something that's so special for me you know for for all of us mortals listening like it's just in what other sport do you get to go feel the holds on some cutting edge, like world known piece of rock, you know, that your climbing hero has climbed or, or stand there with them and climb next to them. It's just, yeah, it's the coolest. Yeah. It's so neat. Yeah. For nothing. It didn't cost nothing. Mm. It cost nothing. I mean, that's the amazing thing that I do other sports now, they cost a fortune. <laughs> I mean, these, these things got, it costs nothing. You can just, you just rock up and you can, you know, you can bolt to bolt. Any route you want, can't you? Nobody's going to stop you. Go, hey, get down. You're not good enough. <laughs> you know, you just, yeah, okay. You don't want to do it. You want to feel the holes. Just go there, then bolt to bolt, touch the holes or abseil down it, whatever you whatever you want to do. Well, that's pretty cool. Why is that? <laughs> Jerry, who inspires you these days? And this does not have to be climbers necessarily, but who are you looking up to or drawing inspiration from in your life these days? Um, well, I don't really, 
I'm not as driven as I used to be, and it's it's quite a big thing for me trying not to be as driven because I don't want to be, as my son calls me, a try-hard, you know, because I'm one of them <laughs> try-hard dads, you know. And he goes, oh, Dad, you're a try-hard. You're a sweat. <laughs> and nowadays it's not such a cool thing. Well, he doesn't think it is. You're trying hard. And I'm like, you know. So I try not to. I try and just back off and just try and enjoy things. So I'm not, I'm not super inspired and stuff now. You know, a lot of that drive, I'm nearly 60. A lot of that inspiration drive has gone. But that's a good thing because I don't want to be, oh, I don't want to be as driven as I was when I was 18. God, I'd be mm. a bloody nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> My poor wife. <laughs> you know, you, at some point you want to try and learn to kick back and enjoy things and be a little bit more mellow. I really try now to be mellow. You know what I mean? When somebody overtakes me, I go, off you go. Whereas when I was 18, I'm like, hang on a minute, you're not doing that. <laughs> so I just try and I just try and kick back a little bit more, take the dogs for a walk, and mm. I'm trying to get out of that now. <laughs> Do you still drive a fast car though? No. no, 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 I don't drive it. No, I drive. No, I drive like a limo thing, which is like all comfortable. And stuff. Okay. okay. So I mean, I, I, I'm not. I would like to drive fast, and I would if it was race tracks. If I was on a racetrack, I'd love to go racetrack, but I wouldn't drive fast on the road. Uh, but mm. if, I, if I had a, a racing car, I'd love to do that. So I would still do that if I had a race a racing car. But I don't. I don't drive quick on the roads. It's just too dangerous. And then <clears throat> I don't know if you know, but I broke my neck two years ago uh, surfing. Oh, so that no. really, yeah, that really kicked my ass. Wow. So my life has changed a lot since so I broke my neck in Lanzarote surfing. No way. So that was a. Yeah, so that was a real traumatic time for me with uh, helicopter to Grand Canary, emergency operation, a um, couple of weeks in hospital there, then flying back, the neck brace, and then learning to walk again and everything. No kidding. So that's really gone, poof, chill out. You know, that's something saying to me, don't do anything dangerous again, chill out. <laughs> and just, you know, so that was pretty life-changing, really. So even though I do climb now is i just top rope and i think oh man i'm still a little bit paranoid about falling mm. off and, and hurting myself and i've done a lifetime of dangerous things and i've broken so many bloody bones and spent so much time in pain in hospitals now i'm just like Poof, end of that mm. let's try and be a little bit safer <laughs> yeah well I, I never would have guessed it sitting here looking at you um you know, watching you walk up the stairs to find a quieter room yeah. to record in, yeah. which I appreciate. But oh yeah, it was it was it was it was it was hard. It was like doing AC plus. You know, getting back to wow. You know, doing physio and walking again, stretching. You know, it was a year of really, really bloody determination trying to get back. So you know, I could move my head without sort of giving it that. It's still quite stiff. I've got I've got a couple of rods and six six screws in my neck. Wow. So it doesn't it doesn't really turn as like it used to. But I'm here, and I'm, You're here. You know, I was, I'm, I'm very, very close to being paralysed. Very close. It was a seventh vertebrae. I've still got numb fingers, and all the pain was in my elbow from the compressed nerve from the from the break and stuff. Man. So that was a really. You never see yourself as being a wheelchair and being paralysed and stuff, but it was very close and it's a bit of an eye opener. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's next for you? What are you excited about these days? Um. Doing some stuff with the climbing wall. I'm doing doing stuff with the climbing wall. Trying to do that. Looking at opening, maybe you know, opening up maybe another climbing wall. Maybe I don't know. Just, just, just enjoying myself. Really That's going great. on holidays, doing stuff with the children. 
making sure the children, my, my kids are 19 and 17, trying to get them into university and getting them jobs, getting them settled down. Do they climb? You have changes when you've got kids. No, no, they don't climb. Okay. No. Uh, they've taken them a couple of times, but I was just, I just really would be terrified if they were climbing. You know, it's all right if you do the things, but you don't want your kids doing them. And I could just have this picture of me laying my son on some really dangerous route. I was like, man, I don't ever want to do that. So I just want them to do safe things uh, and not do anything that I did. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty doing happy doing their own thing. That's cool. Have they have they each found their own thing that they love the way that you love climbing? Uh, well, no, that's pretty no, not really. But I was like, I was kind of a bit of a psycho. A bit of a <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There weren't many people like me. It was so, you know, yeah. I don't want them to be like me. I was a, I was a real tryhard, <laughs> a real tryhard. So. Just so, so, so intense, so mm. intense. And I'm like that when I do other things now. You know, I get really intense. And I, I like shoot, I do a lot of clay pigeon shooting, so I quite enjoy that. Uh, just as a fun thing, just going out and hitting targets and stuff. Uh, I did that when I was a kid, when I was very young. So I've gone back to doing a little bit of that. I like doing stuff with my dogs. I like dog training and, and things like that. And I love going out to the crags, watching people climb and doing a little bit of stuff down at the foundry. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you have any yeah. plans for another book? No, I won't do another book. Okay. No, they, they really take a lot of work. We're yeah. just actually, we're just reprinting Mastermind. So we've just gone through that and just changed a few edits in that. Okay. Uh, but I, I don't think I'd do another book. It's just so much work. Well, I know, um, I know you can buy Mastermind on Amazon, but I'm assuming that's probably not the best way for you personally to get the most money from people that want to support you. What's the best way to get the book uh, as far as dollars in your me, pocket? Just get, get it. I don't care. Just get okay. it. Get it the cheapest way you can and borrow it from <laughs> me. I, I, can, I don't care. I didn't do it to make money. You know, oh, that's if great. they borrow it for you, mate, I couldn't care. I couldn't care less. Awesome. Mate, but, you know, I, I didn't do it to make money. I just want people to enjoy the book and stuff. Mm. <laughs> that's that's great. That's awesome. Uh, and where yeah. can people connect with you on online anywhere? Where can people find you and connect with you? Uh, no, I don't do any. I don't do any video <laughs> yeah. or Facebook or anything. No, I'm a miserable bastard. Good for bastard. you. <laughs> it sounds it sounds yeah. healthy. Yeah, no, I, I don't do anything really. Uh, <laughs> but I would say people, if people walk around to see me, I love it when people come and say hello and stuff. Nice. And I'm very approachable, but I don't do media stuff at all. <laughs> stay out of that <laughs> well Jerry I have really loved this conversation and I, I've taken a lot of your time I really appreciate you oh, no, I, I doing love this talking today. about the old days I love mm. it as you can probably tell is there anything we didn't get to that feels important to share anything you want to leave with people before we call this one no close? just just that you know just be happy that you found climbing and go out there and enjoy it and every time you go climbing just think how lucky you are that you found a great sport and you know, hope people enjoy the climbing. <laughs> well, thanks, Jerry. You're a true inspiration. Um, people listening to this, I'd highly recommend both of Jerry's books, Jerry Moffat Revelations and Mastermind. I will link to both of those in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And you can find everything else we talk to at thenuggetclimbing.com. I'll link to the real thing so you can watch that classic old. Uh, bouldering yeah. film of, of Jerry yeah. and Ben and uh, anything else that we talked about in this conversation I will link to it over there and 
that's it. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And thank you, Jerry. And we'll see you guys next time. Great. Thank you. Hey, friends. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jerry as much as I did. I loved that one. Uh, Before you go, don't forget to check out Grasshopper Climbing. If you want to have a climbing wall in your house but don't know where to get started, This is probably the best climbing board you can buy on the market. This thing is sick. I love climbing on it, and I can't wait to have my own someday. So check them out on Instagram at Grasshopper Climbing or check out their website, grasshopperclimbing.com, to learn more. And if you want to buy a board, be sure to tell them that you learned about them from me, from The Nugget, and you'll save at least $500 off your purchase of your own climbing wall. And be sure to check out Climbwell. Climbwell is having another retreat coming up. The dates are June 9th through the 12th, this time in Rifle, Colorado. By all accounts, these retreats are awesome. People seem to love them, that have experienced them. And you can save 10% when you sign up. Just use code NUGGET10 at checkout and you'll save 10% off your ticket, which is quite a lot of money. It's a really good deal to save 10%. Again, you can learn more about them at climbwell.co on Instagram or climbwell.co is also their website. You can read about the retreat, see if it feels like the right fit, and be sure to use code NUGGET10 at checkout. And that is it, my friends. If you want to read Jerry's books, I put links to those in the show notes. Revelations is probably my favorite climbing book of all time. And Mastermind is a treasure trove of information for mental training for climbing. So again, links to those in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Thank you all for listening to the very end. I appreciate you guys very much. I hope you have an amazing week and thanks for tuning in. funny when i was years later when i went climbing with wolfgang gulick over in germany whenever he introduced me to other people he goes who's jerry you used to live in a used to live in a cave so people would always come up is it true you used to live in a cave <laughs> <laughs> i'd get that for years yeah it's yeah, it crazy times we were That's really great. impressed with that lot because they had cars <laughs> i remember wolfgang coming down to the I think it was 82. I was climbing with Ben Moon in Bukes and stuff, and he came down in a Mercedes, uh, a steak car, and his friend had this Mercedes. And uh, <coughs> we went to this cafe, and they paid, bought us a coffee each. And we were like, oh, he bought us a coffee. And then he looked at our climbing rope, and he was like, our climbing rope was knackered. And he goes, it's so bad, I'm going to give you a rope. And he gave us a rope because <laughs> wow. we had to buy our ropes. And we had this, I, I was climbing on a single nine mil rope, which was just torn to shreds. And he was like, please, I'll give you a rope, but don't climb on that one. <laughs> That's it. Doesn't, yeah. want your, doesn't want your death on his hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What um what cars were you and Ben driving in the real thing? Because you guys eventually had your own. You each had your black little sports cars. Yeah, in that, that one I was roads. in a Lancia, Lancia Integrale. So it was a, a Lancia HF four wheel drive Integrale. So it was 
it's still the most successful rally car of all time. Wow. So the two-litre turbocharged four-wheel drive uh, <laughs> built for – it was built for the World Rally Championship. So they had to build and sell a whole bunch of them to homologate them so you could use it in the World Rally Championship. Okay. So that's what I was driving. So that was a really – real tight suspension beautiful gearbox and steering i mean they're worth oh, they're worth about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars now wow. they cost a fortune it's kind of an old classic <laughs> uh ben was ben was in the same his car was uh it was an original m3 so they use that in the touring cars and that won a lot of the touring car stuff so those again they they're one hundred and fifty thousand dollars probably a hundred thousand quid if you could find one of them, it's like an old classic. They only made both cars. They only made them in left-hand drive. Mm. So living in England, you had a left-hand drive car. Uh, and I had three of those integrals. I had the eight valve. Then they bought a 16 valve out. And then they bought the Evolution, the last one. So I was a fan <laughs> of them. I had three of them. <laughs> Did always you... going wrong. Always going wrong. Always in the bloody garage. With the <laughs> <and stuff. laughs> but probably pretty fun to drive when they were working. Yeah, they were great. It was a great, great car to drive. You know, at the time it was, it was one of the most powerful cars and, and it was just loads and loads of grip with the four wheel drive mm. and stuff. And Benz was a rear wheel drive car. <laughs> yeah. Did you keep <laughs> the last one long enough to make good money on it? Uh, no, I didn't really lose money on it. I think I might have sold it. I don't know. I didn't sell it for, for that much. And then I had a few. So I had, had a few of them, and then I had a few Porsches. I had three Porsches. They were quite good. <laughs> had a Ferrari for a week, but only for a week, and then I gave it back. Really? So I did have some nice cars. Uh, if I had a garage, no, I'd have a nice car now, but I haven't got a garage. So if I did have one, I'd probably have a nice one ferrari or an aston martin or something like that but i haven't so the car she's out on the, out on the road <laughs> gotcha gotcha <laughs> <laughs> you like cars you, you into fast cars or i think it's fun i've never had a fast car though no i've always gone for just like whatever's functional i get really nervous actually if i drive like a nice rental car it's yeah. really fun but i feel kind of stressed the whole time you know i'm like this thing's yeah. too nice i'm gonna ruin it i'm gonna do something to it and then i'm gonna have to deal with yeah. that so even like yeah. even getting this van and having it built out i was yeah. so stressed the first like month driving it around you know everything you own is in the van and it's just yeah. like oh god i don't want to i don't want to get in an accident or scratch this thing or yeah. so yeah i'm happier when i have a, a simple car yeah 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 a bit like that now. Everything's safety from now. Yeah. Safety for me now. That's what I'm at. <laughs>